Thank you and good morning to you all. What a delight it is for me to be here at Grace, making new friends and catching up on some old ones from my Dallas days in the past. It's a delight to be here and I want to thank Pastor Jason, the elders, for the opportunity to bring God's word to you all. The clouds go back many years. Both Hannah and Jace were students of mine at Dallas Seminary when I was teaching there. So it's, it's like coming home for me here. Thank you for the welcome. If you look in your bulletins, there's a little sheet that has all the text that I will be dealing with today. I thought they were going to pass out magnifying glasses too, but I think they forgot. So you'll have to squint real hard to be able to see it, but follow along in that, and that's got a skimpy outline as well, or in your own Bibles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a blessing it is to gather with fellow believers to worship you, magnificent and marvelous as you are, grand and glorious, powerful and providential. All that we need, you have given us, most especially your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have salvation. Thank you. And for your Holy Spirit, who inspired the words of Scripture, for our faith and practice, we give thanks as well. And this morning, as we look into these very same words that were inspired and inscripturated by your Spirit, we ask that this same third person of the Godhead would illuminate our hearts clarify our minds and strengthen our wills to obey so that we would become more Christ-like. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A man went to a church here in Dallas and asked to join. The preacher said, okay, but you have to pass a short Bible test. Where was Jesus born? The guy thought for a minute and answered, Longview? <laughs> what? Sorry, you can't join our church. So the man went to another church here in town and requested membership, and the pastor said, We would love to have you, but you have to pass a Bible test first. Where was Jesus born? The fellow confidently answers, Tyler! <laughs> Tyler! Find another church, buddy, don't come here! Finally ends up at Grace Bible Church, where he runs into Chaplain Bill, who was pastoring here many centuries ago. <laughs> you want to join Grace, Chaplain Bill said? We welcome you with open arms and loud blaring trumpets. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. The man asked, I don't have to pass a Bible test first? Of course not, said Chaplain Bell. Oh, okay, well, then can I ask you a question? Sure. Where was Jesus born? That's easy, Chaplain Bell said. They didn't want to embarrass the guy. He said, in Palestine. Palestine! I knew it was in East Texas someplace. <laughs> tests. I hate tests. With a passion. I've taken too many of them in my life. I hate them. Though I'm now a seminary prof, I, I like giving tests, but uh, 
But rest easy, no test for you today. Instead, we're going to peek in on a test given to somebody else in Scripture. However, we are not going to peek in as disinterested onlookers. Because the same single question quiz that this man took, God administers to us as well. Are you committed to me? Am I enough for you? A test of the priority of God in our lives. How important am I to you? And this morning, eavesdropping on this man's test will tell us how to ace that exam in our own lives. So here we go, three principles for easing the test from the life of the patriarch Abraham in Genesis 22, 1 through 19. Three principles for easing the test. What does it mean to be committed to God? I'll start at Genesis 22, 1 and 2. It's in your handout. Now it came about after these things that God, he tested Abraham and said, Abraham! And he said, here I am. And he, God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth or go yourself to the land of Moriah. It's a rather unusual Hebrew phrase, go forth, lakalaka. Occurs only two times in Genesis. Both times uttered by God, both times addressed to Abraham. The first time Abraham heard, his, heard this phrase was the beginning of the Abraham story in Genesis chapter 12 where God addressed Abraham for the first time. At that time, God had commanded him, go forth from your country, your people, your father's house. Three parts. And here, God is addressing him for the last time in Scripture in Genesis 22. And the second command to go forth is similar too. It has three elements. Go forth and take your son, your only son, whom you love. And offer him there as a burnt sacrifice. And do what? With my son? In Genesis 12, Abraham had been asked to sacrifice his country, his family, his clan, his past. Now he's asked to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves, his future. A burnt offering, trial by fire. God's fire. How important am I to you? Am I enough for you? Sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. More than 15 times in our story here in Genesis 22, 1 through 20, the word father or son is mentioned. The narrator is emphasizing this father-son relationship. Father-son, father-son, father-son. This father had to sacrifice his son, my only son, the one I love. The narrator never, us, never wants for us to forget this relationship. That's not all. In the only conversation recorded in the Bible between this father and this son, between Abraham and Isaac, and it's found in Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Isaac's utterance begins with my father, which is a single Hebrew word, avi. And Abraham's reply ends 
with my son, which is a single Hebrew word too, Beni. First word of that conversation, of the only conversation the father and son have in scripture, starts with my father and ends with my son. The narrator is explicitly raising emotional tension in the story. He's making one thing clear. A father is called to slay the son he loves. My son. My only son. Whom I love. Fiery ordeal. We were told that this was a test, but remember, Abraham is completely in the dark. Why are you, why are you doing this to me, O oh God? And we wonder too, why, why was this test ne needed? Was it really necessary? And why now? Notice how Genesis 22:1 began. Now it came about after these things. What things? And why this test after those things? For that we have to do a quick review of what has happened between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. You see, all throughout the saga of Abraham, the patriarch has been rather clumsily stumbling along in his faith. In Genesis 12, he leaves his homeland, obeying God's call, goes to Canaan. But the next instant, he's in Egypt. He escapes from Canaan because of a famine. The first sign of trouble, he's out there. Could he not trust God to provide? And there in Egypt, you know what he does? He passes his wife Sarah off as a sister, afraid that the Pharaoh would kill him for his wife. Not a whole lot of faith there. If Pharaoh had taken Sarah into his harem, how would Abraham have the descendant that God had just promised him. Also, did you wonder why he takes Lot with him? God asks him to leave his country, clan, family, and he takes his nephew with him. I suppose the man is thinking, I'm too old for this child-rearing stuff. What do you think, God? Me change diapers at 75? I'll just let you work through Lot, my nephew. He's as good as my son. Well, that plan was not to be. Lot ends up in Sodom. And later his descendants become the enemies of the children of Abraham. And then at one point he tries to, in Genesis 15, Abraham tries to pass off his servant Eliezer as his heir, a plan that God immediately nicks us. Dude, that, that's in the Hebrew. Dude, I'm talking about your descendant. Don't you understand? And then when in Genesis 16, Abraham thinks, okay, fine. Maybe that descendant God promised is going to come from my own body. But through that old lady, Sarah, I don't think so. Hey, Lord, how about if I just um, collaborate with that slave girl, Hagar? Well, we all know how that fiasco ended. Hagar and the children are driven out, and then that child becomes the forefather of another tribe of enemies for Abraham and his children. All along, good old Abe, bless his heart, does not seem to be taking God very seriously. Abraham doesn't seem to have a whole lot of faith in the promise of the descendant. To cap it all off, for the second time in Genesis 20, he palms Sarah off as his sister to Abimelech, a local ruler, because he's afraid they'd kill him for his beautiful wife. How could he get killed before having had the descendant God had promised him? Really, this guy is not showing a whole lot of faith. And then, after Isaac is born, that's in Genesis 21, Abraham, look at what he does. Genesis 21, verse 33. And he, Abraham, planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of Yahweh. 
the everlasting God. And we're going, yeah, right. Is this for real? Has God suddenly become the priority in his life? Because you see, when things are going fine and dandy, it's all about planting tamarisk trees, whatever they are, and calling on God and promising him my life. But when push comes to shove, that's when God is dismissed and forgotten. And I do my own thing. In my other life, I practice dermatology and see patients in my clinic, like Carol, whom I saw in the clinic the other day. I've taken care of Carol and her family for many years, so I asked her, hey, Carol, how are the, how are the kids doing? She said, they're great, Dr. K. They're great. Thank God. Knock on wood. Because, you see, God cannot be trusted to take care of my interests, you see. I have to help him along, knocking on wood, crossing my fingers, tossing salt over my shoulders, avoiding black cats, broken mirrors, and umbrellas indoors. God's all right. But I got to do my own thing if I have to get ahead. That's Carol. That's Abraham. And I dare say that's us. And that's why right after Abraham's seeming grandstanding here in 2133, we have almost immediately in 22.1, our main text, now it came about after these things that God, he tested Abraham. A necessary test. How important was God to him? You see, it's easy to plant tamarisk trees and call upon God. It's easy to look go through the process and look good. It's easy to wear the label Christian and be called an evangelical. It's easy to attach a WWJD to my wrist and a fish to my fender. But is it all for real? Or is it just a facade? How important is God to us? Really. There needs to be a test. And in our lives, there will be. Tests of faith are part and parcel of our spiritual pilgrimage. And here's the first step to acing that test. Expect God's fire. Expect God's fire. Not to trouble or to trap, but to stretch and to strengthen us, to remind us of the pettiness of ephemeral things and the priority of things eternal. Of course, our tests may not necessarily follow the pattern of Abraham's. Abraham had a choice. He could have disobeyed. But unlike that case, God may just take away those things we hold dear. A skewed EKG. A suspicious mammogram. Your health, gone. Bank account empty, retirement non-existent, stock market rock bottom. Your finances gone. Layoff is announced, your name is on the list, the boss calls. Your livelihood gone. Maybe some of you are in the midst of tests like that. For the rest, let me assure you, it's just a matter of time. One will surely come your way. But no matter what the format of the test, God's quiz question remains the same. How important am I to you? Am I enough for you? A necessary test for our own good. And the first step to acing that test, expect God's fire. There is an irony in all of this. 
Isaac, the promised descendant, is finally born in Genesis chapter 21. But now in Genesis 22, the very next chapter, God wants him back. Abraham, Abraham must have been absolutely stunned. No escape route, no rain check on the sacrifice, no substituting bird or beast. God wanted Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love. An excruciating test by fire. So Abraham takes Isaac and his young men, servants, and they set out. Genesis 22, 3 and 4. 22, 3 and 4. So Abraham rose at daybreak, and he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, and he arose, and he went. The slow pace of the account is painful to read. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, and saw the place from a distance. Three days. He had three days to rethink this whole business of sacrificing his son. Is God trustworthy? Why Isaac? My son. My only son. Whom I love. We have no record of Abraham's thoughts or words. In this excruciating test by fire. Only silence. Deafening silence. And obedience in absolute, total, complete trust. Listen to his words in 22.5. 22.5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and I and the young man, Isaac, will go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. He's sure of returning with Isaac. How could he be so sure? The answer in one word is experience. Experience had taught Abraham about the faithfulness of his God. God had protected Abraham time and again, even when that rascal had lied about Sarah to save his own skin, not once but twice. God had faithfully seen him through when he messed up taking Hagar for the mother of his child. All along, Abraham had seen the faithfulness firsthand. He had seen the faithfulness and trustworthiness of his trustworthiness of his God. And when Isaac is finally born in the chapter before ours, Genesis 21, God actually hammers home this point of his faithfulness in no uncertain terms. Look with me at Genesis 21, 1 and 2, which is also in your handout. 21, 1 and 2. Then Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did for Sarah as he had spoken. And so Sarah conceived and bore a son at the appointed time, of which God had spoken. Three times it says, as Yahweh said, as he had spoken, of which God had spoken. Abraham, listen up. I have done what I promised. You can trust me. And look at 21.12. Hadn't God promised that through Isaac your descendants would be called? How would Isaac just die and disappear when God had already promised descendants through him? But Abraham had already experienced all these years God's trustworthiness. God's word had come true. God had given him a child just as he had promised. So now here in Genesis 22, at the time of his fiery trial, Abraham is sure of the faithfulness of God. If God gave me Isaac from a dead womb, surely God can give me back Isaac from a charred altar. 
when the time of our test comes? Will we trust God as our provider as Abraham did? If God has taken care of our greatest problem, our greatest eternal problem, that of sin, through his son Jesus Christ, will he not take care of our lesser temporal issues? God can and God will. And if you look back into your own lives, you'll find that God has been providing for you faithfully and freely, beginning with your salvation in Christ. Because what kept Abraham strong now was God's faithfulness in the past. God's faithfulness in the past enables the child of God to face the fires of the future. So here's the second way you can experience the test, ace the test, experience God's faithfulness. First was expect God's fear, experience God's faithfulness. By experience, I mean we must take careful note of God's faithfulness in our past. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the app on both Android and iOS and on other platforms as well called Evernote. Evernote. If you're not, you should be. One of the ways I use that app on my phone and laptop is to create a picture catalog of God's faithfulness as I've experienced it. An album of how God has provided, how God has protected, how God has sustained, how God has answered prayer. All kinds of things are in that catalog. I call that my portfolio of gratitude. Photos of events, of cards, of people, things, pictures of anything and everything that remind me of God's faithfulness in the past. I'd encourage you to do something like that. Create a portfolio of gratitude for yourself or for your family, whether by using Evernote or simply a basket full of index cards. And go through them periodically. Pick a few, maybe every Sunday lunch, and just read it out loud. Just the habit of recounting and recollecting for ourselves and our children, the faithfulness of God will prepare and strengthen us for the fires that are coming. Experience God's faithfulness, remembering it often, celebrating it regularly. How do we ace the test? Expect God's fire, experience God's faithfulness. Thirdly, Genesis 22, 9. Abraham built the altar and he laid out the wood and he bound Isaac, his son, and set him on the altar on top of the wood. I wonder what Isaac saw in Abraham's eyes. My son, my only son, whom I love. Many a father has lost his child through some act of God, illness, accident, tragedy. But for this patriarch, a harder trial by fire was reserved. Yes, his child would be taken by God, but through Abraham's own hand, wielding the blade. But he'd already experienced the faithfulness of this trustworthy God in his past. And so he decides to trust God now. Verse 10 through 12. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called out, called to him from heaven and he said, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the young man, Isaac, and do nothing to him. 
For now I know that you have the fear of God. That's a key phrase. You know why? In Genesis 20, remember Genesis 20 where Abraham pretends Sarah is his sister when the local ruler Abimelech decides to appropriate Sarah? God intervened, scared the daylights out of this ruler, forcing him to return. Sarah, look with me at 20 verse 8. It's also in the handout. Genesis 20 verse 8. And Abimelech rose at daybreak and he called his servants and he spoke all these matters in the hearing and the men were greatly frightened. They were afraid that God would punish them for what had happened. They feared God. But what I want you to catch is this. At the end of that episode, Abraham is confronted by Abimelech about his deception, the wife-sister deception. And Abraham tries to excuse himself to Abimelech, and that's a classic case of self-incrimination. Chapter 20, verse 11, also in the handout, 20, 11. And Abraham said, because I said thinking, surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. That's the first time the word phrase fear of God shows up in the Bible. And we're going, wait a minute, no fear of God? Abimelech was terror stricken by the potential of sinning against God. On the other hand, it was Abraham who did not have enough fear of God to trust him. He was the one who did not have a fear of God. Instead, he feared man. But that was in Genesis 20. But after 21, where Isaac was born, Abraham had come to his senses and acknowledged and recognized God's faithfulness in operation. And so in Genesis 22, things had changed. And that's why the angel of God, as he stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, tells him in verse 12, Genesis 22, 12, now I know that you have the fear, of, the second time fear of God shows up in the Bible. Now I know that you have the fear of God. The one who had had no fear of God two chapters ago, had now become, after experiencing God's faithfulness, the one who feared God. Abraham was now exhibiting the fear of God. And what did that fear look like? Genesis 22, verse 12. 22, 12. Now I know that you have the fear of God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Did you catch that? Your son your only son. Once again, in verse 16, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Twice! Why is the narrator highlighting your son, your only son? Because of something missing here. Remember how it all began in 22.2. Count with me the items. Take your son, number one. Your only son, number two whom you love, number three. What is it now in 22.12 and 22.16? Your son, number one. Your only son, number two. What happened to number three? Whom you love. A deliberate omission. Proof that now Abraham loved someone else more than Isaac. By the way, 22.2 was the first time the word love enters into scripture. Take your son, your only son, and the bells and sirens go off. The one you love more than me. 
God's quiz question, how important am I to you, had finally been answered. Abraham's priorities had been straightened out. He was committed to God. Now he feared God with reverential trust, total surrender, absolute obedience. Abraham exhibited God's fear. So here's a third way to ace the test. Exhibit God's fear. Exhibit, demonstrate, manifest, show. God's fear because God's priority demands that his children hold back nothing from him. Nothing. That's what it means to fear God. He demands my soul, my life, my all. The sacrifice of Isaac never happened. But another sacrifice did, the real sacrifice here, the sacrifice of Abraham, his all for God. And notice how very cleverly the account actually tells us that. Look with me at the very end of the story. See how the story ends in verse 19. It seems like an innocuous verse, but pay attention to the characters in that verse. 22.19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba. Anything strange there? Somebody is missing. Where's Isaac? All along interpreters have recognized this strange omission. Whatever happened to Isaac? The ancient rabbis had a field day speculating on what happened. One rabbi said, God just took Isaac and planted him in the Garden of Eden to study the Torah with Shem, Noah's son. Go figure. Another said, no, 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 that's not what happened. Isaac was so traumatized by the affair, he said, Dad, you go on. I want to catch my breath. I'll come later. <laughs> Another rabbi said, no, 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 that's not what happened. Rebecca, Isaac's mother, was so worried about her baby boy that God just teleported him, as in Harry Potter, straight to Beersheba. Liberal scholars actually think there was a sacrifice, and Isaac was killed. And whoever, Moses, somebody who took the story to make Abraham a hero, changed things around so that that sacrifice didn't happen, but forgot to change the ending. I think the inspired narrator is clearly making a point. A line had been drawn. A decision had been made. Nothing would come between Abraham and God anymore. Not even Isaac. And so Abraham returns home alone, parted from Isaac. In fact, father and son are never again recorded in the Bible as speaking to each other. After the story, Abraham and Isaac are never even shown coming into contact with each other in Scripture. Now, behind the text, what really happened, I'm sure they did. Behind the text, I'm sure they chatted and discussed cars and camels and politics and baseball. But the Bible just completely omits any mention of such contact. In fact, the next time and the last time we find Abraham and Isaac 
conjointly mentioned in scripture is when Abraham is dead and Isaac and his brother come to bury him. The omission of Isaac in our account in 2219 and the rest of the Abraham story is deliberate. The author, with a little help from the Holy Spirit, is clearly making a point. Nothing would come between Abraham and his God anymore. Not even Isaac. Because for Abraham, my son, my only son, the one I love had now become my God. My only God. The one I love. And this God deserves the sacrifice of everything we hold dear. Everything. He did it first for us, didn't he? Giving us his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. How important was God to Abraham? If I may take the liberty to paraphrase. For Abraham so loved God that he gave his only son. Nothing and nobody should come between us and God. Anything or anybody that does is an idol. Family, do you love them more than you love God? Have they become idols? Is family taking up so much time that you haven't been giving adequate attention to your own time with God or to the eternal family of God, your fellow believers, the body of Christ? Or is it money that has become an idol? What has been the pattern of our giving? Going up or going down? Or maybe it's your reputation, your job, the power that you wield. Do you hear God calling for a sacrifice of those idols in your life? A reorganization of your priorities? Saints throughout the age have practiced giving up things of value, at least for brief periods of time. Practice. Sacrifice to tune their fear of the Lord. Perhaps this is something we could emulate. Consider practicing sacrifice, at least temporarily. Here are four suggestions. They are called, commonly called the disciplines of abstinence. Solitude, sacrificing company. Fasting, sacrificing food. Frugality or simplicity, sacrificing luxuries. Celibacy, sacrificing sex. At least temporarily for a period of time that you decide upon. Let me challenge you to make one or more a habit periodically. Skipping a meal or two once a week. Or a temporary fast from media or sex. Or giving up something that has gotten its grip. Maybe a lifetime of practicing frugality. And if it's your gift, as I think it is mine, maybe a lifetime practicing celibacy for the cause of Christ. Practice sacrifice. Engage in one or more of these disciplines of abstinence. They are great ways to exhibit the fear of God, to practice our fear of God. Reverential trust, total surrender, absolute obedience that demands you're all. 
if you were inside the cockpit of a departing airplane, just before it took off from the runway, you would hear the co-pilot or pilot call out, V1, the point of no return. The pilot maintains a hold on the throttle as the aircraft accelerates to V1 speed, after which it is too late to take off, to abort the takeoff should anything go wrong. After V1, there is no turning back. Are you there? Have you reached a V1 commitment in your walk with God? The point of no return in your fear of God. Full throttle, complete obedience, absolute surrender, total commitment. With nothing, absolutely nothing held back from him. God wants that of us. And he will test us. And he will test us. And he will test us again. Till we attain V1. And how can we ace those tests? How can we be committed to God? Expect God's fire. Experience God's faithfulness. Exhibit God's fear. Let's pray. Our Father, these are hard words for us to hear. Even harder to put into practice. We are weak and feeble. Rooted firmly in our temporal existence. Focused intensely upon our own selves. So we beseech you for your strength through the Holy Spirit. To be given to us abundantly. So that we can detach ourselves from these alliances that deter and obstruct our absolute, total, complete commitment and surrender to you. Teach us what it means to have this kind of a fear of God that holds back absolutely nothing from you. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small because your love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Strengthen us, Father, through your Holy Spirit to do just that for the sake of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.